You are listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, this week we heard from one Honolulu City Council member who favors pausing the rail project because of concerns that we can't afford to complete it to Ala Moana Shopping Center. And we heard from another council member who supports its completion. This morning we hear from local developer Stanford Carr, who is the chairman of the pro-rail group Move Oahu Forward. In order for it to be as successful and you know maximize the utilization of ridership, it needs to go all the way to Ala Moana and eventually another spur to University of Hawaii and hopefully the backside of uh, Waikiki. You know, we've had headline after headline about these other problems that we're having with the with the wheels and the tracks and the rust and and then this latest call by segments in the community to put a pause on rail at Middle Street. Stopping at Middle Street like a dead end road. I mean, we need. You can see it through completion, through Dillingham, downtown to Kakaako to Ala Moana Shopping Center. You know, we've anticipated it. It's going to be transformative as to how people commute and improve the, the quality of, you know, equitable transportation and access and connectivity. No matter what, it, it's being the largest infrastructure investment in our state. I, I believe that the return on this is going to be exponential for years to come. I always remind people, look at the big dig of in Boston. I mean, it was controversial. It was billions over budget. It took years, but it was transformative as to how it beautified that city today. And, you know, the community will enjoy that for decades to come on, of all the benefits as a result of it. So remember H3? Remember how people were totally protesting against the construction of H3? And today, I don't think we could live without it. Yeah, you have an alternative route, and that's key. Exactly. And we, we, we're an island. We can't build any more lanes. And, you know, we made the conscious decision over 50 years ago to have to plan Kapolei as a second city, which uh, it's getting there. I mean, I remember building out there 30 years ago in the early 90s where it was still just a bedroom community. Today you have a a base of employment, government. You've got the family courthouse. You've got an FBI training station there. You've got UH West Oahu. So to have the rail station at UH West Oahu, that can continue all the way through Alamoana Shopping Center, you'll really improve quality of people commuting. Right now, spend an hour to an hour and a half per day each way, almost three hours a day in traffic. It takes a toll on people. You know, and, and I have heard the folks on the west side, they need to have another alternative because they've got the sun in their eye. You know, as they come into town and, they, and going home, they have the same thing, and, and it's just hours on the road. And instead, it'll take them from Kapolei to Ala Moana, 40 minutes with free Wi-Fi. They can enjoy, relax, do work on their computer or read and enjoy the ride along the way and not have to be frustrated to being stuck in traffic. So they'll not only improve their quality of life and have more time for themselves and their family, but a lot less stress and elimination of that wear and tear, fuel and, and maintenance of a car. How is Oahu Ford looking at these latest delays? Because I think... We're all kind of taken aback when they canceled the P3 project and and then then pushed off the deadline again. We stand by heart and rail. It's funny that you hear people that make comments about the mayor or the council, but really the mayor does not fully control heart. It's the heart board that makes the decisions. But what really needs to happen, what Mayor Blangiardi is doing, is reaching out to heart as well as the council is doing the same because... As I say, this is a full-contact team sport, so they've got to collaborate and work together to resolve the issues of the past and uh, really get this transit program back on the tracks and see it through its completion. It's all going to be well worth it when it's all done. If you look at all the cities, enough has not been shared with the community and the public as to the success stories of how transit, a rail system, has been catalyst and economic stimulation for many, many cities, St. Paul, Minnesota, Dallas. I mean, so many cities across the country, even Pittsburgh. We've had our Railvolution conference annually in cities such as Dallas, Pittsburgh, Vancouver, uh, Seattle, Minneapolis, St. Paul. I mean, it's been transformative for these cities. Look up Seattle, Washington, for example. The, the community voted for be a public referendum to float the additional billion dollars in bonds to expand the rail system. It's been that successful for their city. You know, you're a developer. You're you're working on projects in Kaka'ako right now. What does the idea of not completing it to Ala Moana mean for the folks that have built or are building 
uh, high rises with the thought that rail's supposed it, to come right by? It would be tragic. We, we will now have the ability, and, and Kailhole Place and Kailhole Lane is the first mixed-use, mixed-income, transit-oriented development with ground-floor commercial envisioning an anticipation of the, the rail station being integrated with the buildings that are completed right there on the corner of Holly Coelho and South Street and bordered by Kiavi Street. We're planning another super block with Kamehameha Schools on the block of Oahi, Koro, Pohukaina, and Cook. There again, we're going to have ground floor commercial workforce rentals integrated with first-time homebuyer condominiums and some market condos. But it's a mixed-income, mixed-use community, so it's not all for sale. There's approximately 125 rental apartments included in the mix of the community, which what makes up the fabric of a community. It's not all for sale ownership, but renter households as well that make up the fabric of this community. We have heard about how rail is transformative, and the whole idea is that you can give uh, areas a facelift, revitalize parts of town that are you know sorely needed, and all along, we've been hearing about this is the opportunity to build affordable housing along the route. Absolutely. You know, because people, instead of having to buy cars, you know, you've got multimodal options. You've got rail. We've got a fabulous bus system. You've got hail riding. We worked with Servco to launch Hui, which is car share. You've got Uber and, and other hail riding platforms. So there's many options for the community today to choose from so that with having rail right outside your doorstep, I mean, it makes it so convenient. You don't have to worry about jumping in a car and driving somewhere, look, worrying about parking or the cost of parking. I'm looking forward to it. So we're a big supporter of the rail system. I firmly believe we will resolve these issues. They'll put that behind us. You know, we are talking about the Malka shift in the Dillingham area, and, you know, that's going to require taking property that wasn't on that original plan. I'm sure, you know, Kamehameha Schools, you know, is looking to see what the, the city is going to take. I kind of feel for the property owners, you know, who had their land condemned, and, and if it doesn't go down that route, you know, th that's not going to leave them with a very good feeling. No, it's not. I mean, we can't change the past, and there's no sense in looking back what we need to focus on is looking forward. You know, Lori Kaikina and her team are looking at cost mitigation matters. By shifting the uh, the guideway Malka, they can eliminate, as she said, the spaghetti of underground infrastructure utilities that exist. Problem is, after decades and decades of infrastructure utility installations along the corridor from Dillingham through Kaka'ako to Alamoana, the city's as-built drawings really do not reflect what's under the roadways. Uh, we encountered those same challenges when we developed Halikawila Place and Halikawala along uh, Halikawila Street and Kiawe and towards Kona Street and Pekoi. So we've had to make alternative connections elsewhere in order to tie in our sewer lines or, or drain lines or our electrical fault. So it is what it is. But So they're learning from what they experienced out in the Aiea, Pearl City, Waipahu neighborhoods. They made the conscious decision that they need to get ahead of the guideway and relocate the underground infrastructure, both wet and dry utilities, so that when they're coming through to build the, the columns and the guideway, that they're not going to encounter the disruptions, delays of relocating the underground utilities while at the same time trying to build the columns and guideway. They made the right decision there. Well, how far Malka are we shifting, I guess, is, is the question, right? I don't know exactly, but sufficient so that they do not have to underground both sides of Dillingham's on the high voltage above ground utilities power lines. They can leave the Mackay overhead power lines in place and not have to underground it. Are you worried that there could be, I don't know, legal action if we don't complete this to Alamona? Absolutely. I mean, the $1.5 billion contributed by the Federal Transportation Administration, that money, we would have to pay them back. It's a lot of money, but we need to just see it through. I'm talking about, let's say, the uh, private developers who have put up high-rises in Kaka'ako. Our business plans did not completely bank on it. You know, we did not know when the rail station was going to come through, which is why we created a vehicular Woonerf. So there's a driveway along the Malka portion of the parking structure at Keahoe Place and Keahoe Lane. And the depth of the property that Hart purchased, we had a, a backdoor contingent plan that in the event 
for some remote reason, if the transit was decided not to be built, that that land could then be developed with more townhouses and ground floor commercial, much like how we developed along the Keawe Street frontage of Keahoe Place and Keahoe Lane. So we had a contingent plan in designing the master plan of the what-ifs, because when we started designing Keahoe Place, it was about 2013, and there was still an ongoing litigation with the rail system. So there was a possibility that it was not going to happen. Okay, so you used to have a plan B. And we also planned that all of the ground floor parking stalls uh, that face and are adjacent to the transit station, those parking stalls will then convert to retail storefronts when the rail is in operation and the station open in order to serve the patrons. How are you looking at uh, you know the concern that people have about the trains themselves? I mean, they're sitting out there, I think, starting to rust. You know, I mean, 2030 is still a ways away. It is somewhere along the line between the Ansaldo, which is the original selected train, was Ansaldo, which was eventually purchased by Hitachi as a result of the bankruptcy. Somewhere along the line, this the wheels and the tracks slipped through the cracks, you know. But I'm sure there's enough smart people on the team, they'll figure out a solution. I have the confidence in them on that. Anything else you want to underscore just from uh, where the businesses sit? Well, I wish there'd be more stories about the success of rail and how it has been an economic catalyst for many other cities and how it's been transformative as to how people commute and the connectivity and accessibility it provides to the community. Uh, Because there's a lot of positive stories out there in other cities that could be shared with our community to see the brighter side of rail and the impacts, the positive impacts uh, for island. And again, like I said, you know, we're an island. Um, we can't keep expanding and sprawling out to the suburbs. There's nowhere to go. We can't build any more lanes. So we're at our capacity, and rail is the, the perfect solution. And One thing I do want to bring uh, mm-hmm. mention, though, that this rail system has really uh, uh, provided uh, career opportunities for our, our younger generations. And Leeward Community College was quick to develop the curriculum to train and educate the technicians that will provide ongoing, high-paying jobs at the rail system. So that's another benefit that this rail system brings to our community. That was developer Stanford Carr. He's the chair of Move Oahu Forward, which has long advocated for the rail project. The group maintains it doesn't make sense to stop the project at Middle Street and advocates for completing the route all the way to Ala Moana, even though rail critics are calling on a pause for the project because of concerns about the soaring costs of the $12 billion train. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with Joyful Return, a museum-wide exhibition featuring a presentation of modern and contemporary highlights from the permanent collection, honolulumuseum.org. If you're looking for ways to support this public radio station, consider applying for HBR's Community Advisory Board. It's a group of volunteers from across the Hawaiian Islands who advise HBR's management on programming and outreach efforts. We're currently seeking 11 individuals to join this advisory team. To nominate yourself or someone else, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Application deadline is June 25th. You're listening to The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. There's something special about FIRST. That's why we're testing your knowledge of a beloved business's FIRST in today's Backyard Quiz. 
This business was started by Jim Senegal and Jeffrey Brotman with their first store opening in Seattle in 1983. Senegal's roots in the retail business started in 1955 as a grocery bagger at, the, at a supermarket chain. There he climbed his way up to vice president before eventually landing an executive job at Price Company. There he became a protege of Soul Price, widely considered the father of the warehouse club concept. After Senegal started his own warehouse club, it became a financial success, becoming the first company to hit $3 billion in sales in under six years. Today, it ranks 10th in Forbes' list of largest companies by revenue. You probably know by now that we're talking about Costco. Its first Hawaii location was opened in Honolulu in 1988, followed by several more stores across three islands. The Ivalay location is the busiest in the world, but it wasn't Costco's first site when it came to Oahu. So what we want to know today is where was the location of the first Hawaii Costco? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareedhawaii.com. report out from a nonpartisan immigration and advocacy research group found that in 2018 here in Hawaii, immigrants contributed more than $17 billion to the local economy. This morning, we talked to Mo Kapner of the New American Economy and Catherine Chen of the Hawaii Coalition for Immigrants' Rights about the latest findings. Here's Mo. We were created about 10 years ago under the premise that the conversation around immigration really needed to be rooted in data, particularly understanding the economic imperative for better immigration policies. So we have a really fantastic research team that provides customized research reports. And when COVID hit and people were forced to shelter in place and a lot of families and businesses were hit really hard, we realized that where we could be most helpful for communities is helping them understand the role that immigrants are playing, both in how they're contributing as essential workers, but also where they're particularly vulnerable. So we were contacted by an organization called the Legal Clinic Hawaii, which is a nonprofit immigration legal services provider located in Honolulu. And they were particularly interested in exactly what we had been focusing on, better understanding the immigrant population as essential workers from across the state, but also better understanding the disproportionate impact that COVID has had on households, on small businesses, on the immigrant community, et cetera. So that's how we got connected to start this report. And the data you looked at was from 2018? Yeah. So the the data sources that we utilized are mostly from the American Community Survey, which is their five-year sample. So the latest data that we could use was from 2018. But what that really does is it also allows us to look at the role that immigrants were playing across the state before the pandemic hit and, and sort of see where they were already particularly vulnerable. So the pandemic didn't necessarily cause all the barriers that immigrants face, but it does highlight the vulnerability of the immigrant population and where they really could use support. And Catherine, jump in here. Is it then your understanding that this is really the first time that we've looked at this in this kind of depth? This report certainly, I think, brings very important new pieces of conversation where it really uses data to explain a lot of the things that we know anecdotally that there's a story here of contribution and inequity. You know, it isn't just a story of victimhood, it's a story of strength and community, but there also is real suffering in immigrant communities that, like Mo said, the pandemic really highlighted and kind of showed the world in, in a clearer way 
one thing that really jumped out at me was the percentages. You know, immigrants are such a big part of Hawaii. I think it's almost one out of five, and and they aren't all newcomers. You know, many have lived and worked here for a long time. They range a whole bunch of statuses, a whole bunch of languages, a whole bunch of countries of origin, and, and they're really just a part of our fabric. And and then the second is the end of the report talks about different cities and different policies that cities do to contribute to immigrant welfare. And in Honolulu, I was surprised to see ranked kind of low among similar sized cities. You know, immigration law is federal, but state and local policies are extremely powerful and affect the day-to-day lives of immigrants just as much as any federal immigration law. So that's always really important to note as well. And Mo, because you have the, you know, the long view, I guess, and you were comparing the states across the country, what was it that stood out to you about Hawaii? Like Catherine just mentioned, you know, immigrants account for just about 18% of the population across the state, but they're really contributing in some really critical industries and and occupations that have been so crucial during the pandemic. So, you know, despite being 18% of the population, immigrants accounted for 68% of all housekeeping workers, which, as we know, during the pandemic has been particularly crucial as we have these more stringent cleaning and disinfectant requirements that offices and businesses have gone through. But immigrants also accounted for over 40 percent of the um, agricultural workers. They account for 47 percent of all nursing assistants and 20 percent of all physicians. So we see whether it's healthcare, whether it's work in the food supply chain, whether it's in keeping us healthy and safe, um, we're seeing immigrants playing these outsized roles. But we're also seeing ways in which they're particularly vulnerable from the pandemic. So again, with the immigrant population being 18% of the state's population, they're 31% of the population across the state that doesn't have health care insurance. We also know that immigrants are more likely than their U.S.-born counterparts to live in multi-generational households, which means that there's this increased density and the higher likelihood of transmission of the virus once it's made its way into an immigrant household. And Catherine, you know, given our history here in Hawaii with the plantations, I saw that, you know, that one statistic where half of the immigrants in Hawaii are from the Philippines. As we talk to the hotel workers, you know, they tell us, yeah, you know, our families came over to work in the sugar plantation in the pineapple fields, and now they are working in the hotels in the tourist industry across the state. That's a really good point. And like Mo said, the, the agricultural industry, healthcare industries, such important industries during the pandemic, but really all all the time, always. And and I also wanted to kind of point out this report and kind of everything we're talking about, not just Oahu, but also about neighbor islands and, you know, neighbor islands kind of having their own unique populations and needs and really the importance of the immigrant communities in, in all of our islands. And we've seen the impact of COVID. Many of these families live in, you know, multi-generational homes and in uh, cramped quarters where the transmission uh, of COVID-19 is just uh, much easier. And as a result, many have tested positive for COVID and, and many have died. And so there is this real concerted effort now to make sure those communities are vaccinated. But it really did take some pressure to get, you know, our health officials really looking at where do we need to be to protect all the most vulnerable. That's a, such an important point. And I think the COVID-19 crisis highlighted, exacerbated the needs and inequities. And, you know, the, the path to COVID-19 and economic recovery is a long one that we're in the middle of. And, and it won't happen if the state leaves behind immigrant families. And, you know, preparing for the next crisis is also important because once the crisis hits, it's a little too late and you're playing catch up. Um, and, and I think one of the really important things we learned from this crisis is how important language access is. Um, you know, state agencies really need to provide good language access and relatedly the issue of technology access so that individuals who are limited English proficiency or don't have access to you know, smartphones or computers, especially when libraries are shut down and, and things are shut down, um, are able to access the same benefits and the same important public health messaging and all of that. And Mo, talk about, I guess, the the fact that immigrants, wherever they live, have been pretty resourceful, right? They see this as a land of opportunity, and uh, they've just created jobs for themselves. Yeah, exactly. I just wanted to to highlight how there are, you know, 
obviously a lot of things that we can be doing to better support the immigrant community. But I also want to just take a moment to celebrate all of the major contributions that they're that they're making to the state. So immigrants are 24 percent more likely to be entrepreneurs than their U.S. foreign counterparts. So they're they're helping create jobs across the state. Um, you know, they paid over $1.5 billion in federal taxes and over $874 million in state and local taxes in 2018 alone. And that's money that goes back into supporting infrastructure and schools and, and everything um, that really helps keep the state running. So just imagine, like, how much more we could do if, if um, the immigrants had the support that they needed and how much the entire state would really benefit from um, from that additional support. One of the facts that the research has borne is that a lot of these uh, immigrants may not have health insurance. Exactly. So immigrants account for, again, about 18 percent of the of the population across the state, but they account for over 31 percent of the um, population that doesn't have health insurance. So despite the fact that we are seeing immigrants working in these really critical and essential industries as, as frontline workers, and despite the fact that we know that they live in multi-generational households and are, are more likely to be living in situations where the disease may be more easily transmissible, um, they are less likely to have the health insurance and the access to health care that they really need when or if you know the pandemic happens to, to hit home for them. So it's, it's definitely important to, to understand where and how the state and the local communities can really be stepping up to make sure that immigrants have access to testing, have access to the vaccine, um, and have it in a way that is accessible uh, to them in their own language and in a culturally confident manner. And Catherine, is there anything you want to add uh, just about uh, you know the Micronesian community here and the challenges that they face? Yeah, in particular for the community from the Federated States of Micronesia and Republic of Marshall Islands and, and Palau, and you know, uh, it's the, the folks here through COFA status for a long time were not eligible for Medicaid, and luckily that's now after a very very long fight from community advocates, two decades long, they are are eligible and so making sure that that the rollout of the the Medicaid expansion to this um, immigration status is done well and to just really look into rectifying that really jarring statistic and in addition to just eligibility of course again you know language access making sure that folks understand and know what resources are out there and have the ability to access them is something that affects everyone and is something that all levels from local to state to federal need to, to really pay attention to and work together to, to achieve. This really is just the opening conversation. We released this research and this report as a way to begin a conversation with the with the stakeholders. I think particularly looking at the um, cities index that Catherine mentioned a little bit earlier, which is really a quantitative analysis of how the 100 largest cities across the country are integrating immigrants into their communities. We see that there are a lot of ways, there are over 31 different policy indicators that communities can look at to make sure that they are creating a welcoming community for mm -hmm. the immigrants and making sure that everyone can live their potential. Um, but what we do on the state and local team within New American Economy is we, we use this research that's been put out by our research team to, again, begin these conversations about what policies can really be put in place or what policies can be utilized to better support the immigrant community. And so we are really looking forward to continuing this conversation, to having more conversations with stakeholders and bringing more people to the table so that we can really make sure that, again, everyone is living up to their potential across the state. That was Mo Kantner of the New American Economy and immigration attorney Catherine Chen. Uh, she is with the Hawaii Coalition for Immigrant Rights. Uh, they were talking about a new report on what immigrants contribute to our economy and our workforce. Support for HPR comes from Keiki Kau Kau, offering wooden toys designed in Hawaii. With the Leipua bead set, little ones can string their own flower lei, a way to develop fine motor skills, online at keikikaukau.com.
You tune to HPR for local reporting that's relevant, reliable, and fact-checked. All qualities that help set the station apart and earn recognition from industry leaders. Congratulations to HBR's news team for winning three regional Edward R. Murrow Awards in the categories of news series, investigative reporting, and excellence in sound. To learn more and to listen to the winning stories, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses such as art, film, history, and gardening. Classes begin Sunday, May 23rd. More by searching Osher Hawaii. Broadband is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Kevin Dayton is on the line. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Catherine. Happy Monday. Or not Monday. Happy Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> You're off a couple. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> so broadband, what do we need to know? Well, uh, you know, this this whole discussion about rural broadband and uh, some of the problems that the pandemic has, has really underscored. Um, I want to take you back a little bit, if I can. Um, you know, back in, in 1990, believe it or not, um, I was assigned to cover the lava flow down in Kalapana, down on, uh, on the uh, east side of the Big Island. And I got down there and discovered that they had party lines. And so the modem system that I was supposed to be using to upload my stories was inoperable, basically. I had never seen, I had never experienced party lines before. It was my first experience with that. And now kind of what we're watching play out is, is pretty similar. Um, these rural communities, uh, particularly on the Big Island, but also Hanamali and in some other places, Kapaa, Kauai, um, have um, don't have the proper access to broadband that we all know has become so important, especially during the pandemic. I mean, we're watching expansion of education services online, businesses are online, uh, doctor's appointments are online, and if you don't have that kind of broadband access, you're at an incredible loss in this society, especially now during the pandemic. Right. I mean, we've heard so much about the digital divide, and if folks can't get access to go online, boy, you're in trouble. Absolutely. And, you know, if you're interested in numbers, the census data shows that, you know, about 85 percent of Hawaii is hooked up and has a broadband subscription. But if you start looking at the Big Island, it's only 77.5 percent. So that's getting pretty close to one in four families don't have the kind of access that they really need to have. That leaves out a lot of households. And as uh, Governor Ige said last month, broadband today is like telephone was 100 years ago. You've got to have it. And so uh, what did uh, lawmakers come up with as far as uh, federal funding? Well, it's yeah, a lot of it is federal funding. The good news is that the pandemic has really gotten the attention of the Biden administration and experts are telling us that the federal government is going to commit, you know, really substantial amounts of funding, billions of dollars in the years ahead to to deliver broadband service to um, homes, rural homes all across the country. But, you know, Hawaii should be able to get a, a share of that. And you may remember that Ige in his State of the State address this year highlighted some initiatives. Um, he wanted a broadband and di digital equity office to be created. And it was. The legislature approved that. And then the legislature um, also approved a new grant program to provide funding to encourage some of the major providers, such as Charter and uh, Hawaiian Telecom, to apply on their own for federal subsidies. So it isn't just the state trying to get the money. It's these private entities also applying for, for subsidies and for support to extend the lines. That got about $5 million in federal funding, uh, and the idea is that, that that money would be used to help charter and to help Hawaiian Telecom and other ISPs to um, encourage them to apply because the federal application process is really rough um, and, and can be very expensive. You have to staff it and you have to, you have to sort through all the regulations and so on. Legislature also put up about $10 million for a longer-term project, which is the idea would be to finance new cable landings for both Trans-Pacific and Inter-Island cables. That eventually is supposed to cost something on the order of about 40 to 50 million bucks. Um, so this wouldn't cover the whole cost of the project, but it would move it forward. And the hope is that uh, providing the landing infrastructure will encourage a new cable provider or providers to come and stretch cable, undersea cable, both to Hawaii and then also between the islands. Yeah, I mean, that cable is so vital. Oh, it's critical, and, and something I learned in, in putting this together was that, you know, the, the, of the three inter-island cables, two of them are really about ready to, you know, they're getting fairly close to, to using up their useful life, and something has to happen, um, you know, we, and we need to buck up that infrastructure as best we can. Um, let's see, the other, other things that they've done is um, 
the State Department of Transportation is is deeply into a project uh, using about um, using about I think it's about forty three million dollars in federal funding. That's a larger project with a with a vehicles everywhere type name on it. Uh, basically, communication, internet communication, and and broadband communication between vehicles. But also, as part of that project, they want to start setting up Wi-Fi hotspots in places that are underserved now. And it may surprise people. That's not just Hanamali, and that's not just Puna and Kau on the Big Island. That's also Kuhio Park Terrace um, in Kalihi, and in places like that where they just don't have the kind of service or the kind of access that they need to have in this modern age. Right. Yeah, we saw the, them do that on Maui as well uh, to help the you know the folks in Hana. Uh, so, yeah, lots needs to be done across the state. But uh, thanks so much, Kev. You bet. Thank you. That was reporter Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. To read his story online, visit civilbeat.org. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute with University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart. He introduces us to a long-legged shorebird known as the Kolea. And special thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology for today's field recordings. The song of the Kolea, or Pacific Golden Plover, can only be heard from August to April in Hawaii. By late April, parts of their golden plumage have changed to black and white, and they embark on an incredible three to four day non-stop journey to Alaska to breed. When the parents are done caring for their babies, all the Kolea return to Hawaii by late August to escape the cold Alaska winters. Kolea are long-legged shorebirds that are most often seen on shorelines and lawns foraging for insects and worms. The annual migrations of Kolea are thought to have been one of the many cues used by Polynesians in their navigations across the Pacific. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. Backyard Quiz, we were testing your knowledge of one of Hawaii's most beloved retail chains, Costco. The Warehouse Club was started in Seattle in 1983 by two veterans of the retail business and now boasts 804 stores worldwide with plans to open its first store in New Zealand this year. The first Hawaii location popped up in 1988, just five years after the business started. If you've been a member since the beginning, you may also remember their name being Price Costco between 1993 and 1997 after a merger with Price Club. Additional Hawaii locations followed in Waipio, Hawaii Kai, Kona on the Big Island, Kahului on Maui, and Lihui on Kauai, with the Kapolei location being the newest. In addition to offering groceries and other items in bulk, Costco is also beloved for its food court. Members can pick up the fresh-baked pizza and other ready-to-eat items, but it is best known for its hot dog and soda combo priced at just $1.50. Among the locations in our state, the Evelay store is a shining star. That's because it is the busiest in the world, vying for the, the yearly title with the location in Seoul, South Korea. And while Evil A Central Location makes it the closest store to many Oahu households, it does not make it the first uh, location here in Hawaii. That distinction goes to Salt Lake Moanalua, where the original store uh, was set up uh, until the Evil A store opened in 2000. 
and two. And you will recognize that space now as the home of a Target store. And congrats to our backyard uh, quiz winner, Michelle Grotstein from Kaneohe. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have a suggestion for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Twenty-seven lives were claimed by a COVID-19 outbreak at the Yukio Okutsu State Veterans Home in Hilo last year. Among them, Melvin Mike Tomita, the sixth resident to succumb to the virus. Tomita's family remembers him as a generous cook who loved talking story and playing music. Tomita playing the harmonica. The veteran went to Yukiwakutsu for rehabilitation after he suffered a stroke in 2019. His youngest daughter, Roxanne Ruff Tomita, sat down with the conversation's Lillian Song to talk about the man many called the bull. He was born in Punene Hospital. He grew up in Kahului, the oldest of four children. His brother Paul is the last living and currently resides in Monterey Park with his wife, children, grandchildren. My father graduated Baldwin High School in 1951. He was a good athlete. He and Brother Wayne were swimmers and won many medals. And he married my mom, Catherine Arai from Spreckelsville. And she was his wife of 50 years before she passed in 2002. So mom is already in the niche at Punchbowl, the National Cemetery of the Pacific on Oahu. And we're going to bring my dad's urn to Honolulu in September 2021. We're planning to have his service there with military honors. And the Honolulu Fire Department wanted to drive by on their fire engines and ladder companies to pay respects. Mm. My dad was nicknamed the Bull by Black Perry. Black was a former firefighter, union president for over 30 years, and my dad was the engineer, fire engineer, so he drove the fire truck at Station 34 in Hawaii. He retired in 1991. The fellow firefighters also referred to him as the Bull because he loved to tell stories. I personally didn't believe anything my father said. <laughs> it was mostly BS, but um, I have many stories or embarrassing moments about my dad. Well, I can only imagine what it must have been like being his kid. Thanks so much for sharing those emails with the photos and the videos. You know, your dad's spirit really shines through. I also learned a lot reading Kevin Dayton's Civil Beat story. You know, he worked hard, but he really knew how to have fun. And some would say maybe he was a little rascal, you know, very rascally. Like he could make up stories. I'll tell you one okay. of him. Mm, okay. <laughs> really funny, but like during our family reunion in 1994 at Disneyland, there was a reporter from Eureka, California, who bumped into my dad. And we had like family reunion T-shirts, you know, with Tomita on the front with the family photo. Mm. And so the reporter asked my dad if he knew Isao Tomita. And my father claimed to be him. He said, I am Isao. Ha, ha, ha. Was this Isao Tomita the composer? Yeah. Poet? Okay. My father claimed to be him, you know. And my father went even further to describe his favorite sonnet that he composed, Midnight Serenade or something. You know, we kept crossing paths, like with the reporter, because the line was like two hours at Flash Mountain ride. But luckily, you know, after the ride, my mom set the reporter straight. She was sitting on the bench outside, and the reporter recognized my mom because she was wearing the same Tomita reunion T-shirt. So the reporter said, oh, I was honored to meet your husband, Isao. 
And my mom said, he's not Esau, his name is Melvin. <laughs> he likes to tell stories all the time, but can you imagine the reporter? Oh. And so the reporter's leg was pulled all this time. Oh, my gosh. And we kept passing you know, him in the line, and he oh. kept asking more questions and wanting to take more pictures. Sorry, I digress. <laughs> my dad enlisted in the U.S. Army and National Guard on July 7, 1952, while he was working for Remington Rand on Maui in sales and service of office machines. He transferred to the U.S. Army Reserve, 100th Battalion, 442nd Infantry, 29th Division, and was activated in May 1968 to Vietnam, where he was a cook on the front lines. So his rank was Sergeant First Class. He was Mess Sergeant. My father is a Bronze Star Medal recipient. However, he never mentioned it, nor did he share the story behind it. And people asked me after he passed, and I wish I knew, but like many Vietnam vets, he never discussed his negative war traumas um, regarding the nursing home, my father went into the nursing home on June 17, 2019, and our family hoped it would be a temporary rehabilitation. So he was at the state veterans' home, I refer to as Yukio. And I think um, during those six months, I just wanted to keep things light for my dad so that he would be at peace. Due to his dementia, I'm not sure he fully comprehended. COVID, you know, I had to explain and provide education during daily phone calls and Zoom meetings, why we couldn't visit, and even the volunteer hairstylist couldn't go in to cut veterans' hair in the barbershop there. Mm. So we held Zoom meetings with my father three times a week, with myself, immediate Ohana, fireman friends, um, his last day, September 3rd, my father's brother Paul and cousin Pastor Daniel from Hilo Kinaole Church happened to join the meeting, which was fortuitous because we didn't know it then, but it was the last time we all saw my father. He was the sixth out of 27 patients total that died of COVID. At the time, in September, there were 46 residents and 12 staff that tested positive for COVID. The day before my dad passed, there was one death. And then the following day, there was three more. And at Hilo Medical, there were eight residents on the COVID unit and two more in the ICU. It was a scary, tenuous time, and I would jump every time the phone rang. So my dad was being tested every few days, and I was notified frequently of test days and results, and all of the tests came back negative, including his last day, which was Thursday, September 3rd, 2020. I was emotionally devastated, especially with watching the evening news. It was a really confusing time. I recall the news, you know, recanting that my father had COVID, then, and then that he didn't, then that he did. The following day after he passed, Yukio called me and informed me that the test taken on his last day was negative, came back negative. Mm -hmm. Then Department of Health called me stating that he had COVID because the results came back positive from the two tests taken in the ER, the rapid and the blood test. It's been tough, and I'm you know, Lillian, I really appreciate, you know, the time with you. I'm grateful for this opportunity to mm -hmm. share my father's story and to honor his life, as well as to pay tribute to the memory of many lives lost to COVID and not COVID this past year. It's impacted us all, and it's not over. Learning how to live with the virus has become our way of life now. So hopefully there'll be more opportunities 
available like this that help bring forth conversations and a time of healing and to bridge our communities together as we face what the future brings. I just want to wish peace to everyone. I want to do a shout out to, to Hawaii Public Radio. I listen all the time. I never ever thought I would be on the radio. I leave it to the bull. We're still fighting to keep his memory alive. You know, he he loved cooking at parties. He loved to sing, play ukulele, harmonica. He performed Can't Help Falling in Love by Elvis Presley at my Yakudoshi, my uh, 32nd birthday celebration on Maui, accompanied on that song by my mom's sister, Auntie Mio. And sadly, she passed away, too, during the COVID pandemic in 2020 while residing at Halemakua in Kahului. But she didn't die of COVID. In fact, her husband, my uncle, Kaoru, is still there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My dad, he, he was a good cook. You know, one thing, he made a lot of it. So nishime, Portuguese bean soup, beef soup, gravy. I guess was out of habit, you know, from cooking in his army days and at the fire station. My son, Yo, says, I'm the same way. I cook a lot. <laughs> but my father emulated the concept of hono, you know, do the right thing in his life and career. So mahalo, Lillian, and Hawaii Public Radio. I want to say thank you to Gary Kubota, former reporter, as well as Great Panthers and others, you know, bringing attention to the number of kapuna lost to COVID and nursing homes. It's astounding. I didn't realize the number, you know, 186,000 and still climbing. That was Roxanne Ruff Tomita talking with our Lillian Sung about her dad, Melvin Mike Tomita. The decorated Vietnam War veteran story will be part of a National Day of Remembrance event tomorrow honoring nursing home lives lost during the pandemic. And we're going to leave you with uh, the bull singing Can't Help Falling in Love. Wise man said, Only got to go now but up tomorrow we salute the armed forces we'll be talking to newly retired major general suzanne varislam she's the first native hawaiian uh female in the uh, highest ranking female in the army i'm katherine cruz join us tomorrow for more of the conversation <laughs>